Hello, it's John Faithful Hamer at the Like Phil podcast. Uh, today I'm going to be talking with Genevieve Wienerowski, a writer uh, who's just uh, written a very interesting piece on the subject of privilege. So you say in your piece in Quillette that privilege is a concept that is no longer very useful. So why is that? I don't want anybody to take away from the piece that I wrote that I don't understand that privilege exists. Um, clearly it does. It's a useful term in all kinds of ways, but I think that the way that it's being... So how is it, before we even just go on, because I, I find this, fa I teach on this stuff. So um, why do you think it's a, a useful, before we talk about the problems with it, why do you think it's a useful uh, concept? Um, it's a word that's been used for, I don't know, hundreds, <laughs> I, I can't say for sure, 700, 912 years. Um, to great effect, uh, it you know it's descriptive and it's useful, but um, you know in the last I suppose the last couple of years, last few years, you know you see it deployed in all kinds of ways, um, usually as a slur mm -hmm. or um, as part of a an order or a command for somebody to you know stop stop what they're doing, stop what they're thinking, stop what they're saying, and take an inventory of whatever privilege so called in quotation marks, they're enjoying. And I'm not sure that this is a very effective thing to do. To get, yeah. I, I guess for me, the way that I try and explain um, what is positive about and what is useful about the concept when I'm teaching on the subject of privilege is I say it's sort of like um, lottery tickets. You know, if you have a great deal of privilege, if you're born with a lot of opportunities, you have, you're born very healthy in a wealthy household and you have, you know, whatever, all the various advantages, then it's sort of like being given, you know, a thousand lottery tickets or 10,000 lottery tickets. So your chances of winning and winning big are quite high, but it's still possible given the, uh, the way the, the numbers work, it's still possible to have a great deal of privilege and completely fail. Right? I th I and think likewise, that's key. you can yeah. have almost no privilege and just end up with like one lottery ticket and win everything. Right. So it increases the chances that you'll be successful, but it doesn't guarantee that you're successful. It doesn't guarantee it by any means. And if you look at the way people move up and down, um, or, or collectively or individually, how they move up and down, say the through the social classes, yes. um, you know, especially looking at North America, people can move from the working classes up to the super rich and back down again. I think it's more interesting to look at the individual rather than the collective, which I think opens up another conversation. <laughs> <laughs> well, you said that about. <clears throat> I thought that was really interesting about Margaret Atwood that to for people to say that somehow. The only reason she has been successful in a highly unlikely field is just because of her privilege seems you, you have to account for the fact that there's, you know, tens of thousands of Margaret Atwoods that didn't make it and were not successful. Right. So. Um, in defense of Margaret Atwood, there are probably not <laughs> tens, tens of thousands. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes. Uh, I think that's true. I think that obviously there there are millions of people who are talented, who you know have all kinds of potential that'll probably never be realized. Billions, if you look at at you know the world as a whole, that's true, and it's a it's a terrible reality. And I think that is something that can be. I think it's, it's something that needs to be addressed. That is being addressed in many, many, many different ways. There, are, you know, uh, people have been trying to address inequities and and injustice. Um, you know, for the last several hundred years, particularly since the Enlightenment, when the focus has been on, on human and human in, uh, individuals and human potentiality. Um, and 
and you know some of those waves work well and some of them work less well and obviously you know we remain a world where there are a lot of poor people and a lot of people who will never get to be a Margaret Atwood no matter how talented how talented they are that's for sure and I think that it's interesting or more interesting and more useful to look at ways in which we can uh, allow individuals with potential to actually realize it rather than um, rather than talk about the ways in which the people who have achieved success especially in the arts um, are somehow as owe anything to anybody I mean we mm -hmm. should be looking to them for inspiration they can be aspirational they're the very people who are going to give you know inspiration and sucker and 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 all of that to the to the people who need it the most I mean mm -hmm. I think that that's that's the way it ought to be looked at and then there are so many ways in which um other ways in which people are privileged you cannot a tall person is privileged because you know he or she can reach the the top cupboard and short people are privileged people mentally healthy people yeah absolutely and uh and that's a that's kind of a wonderful thing wouldn't it be great sure if every single person on earth was six feet tall or if if that's <laughs> if that's the standard we're gonna go for <laughs> and super brilliant and we're able to do all those things but that that that's not the world that we live in yeah there's a wonderful scene in the book by jd vance hillbilly mm -hmm. elegy i just read that oh you know okay. yeah. well you know when he talks about going to yale mm -hmm. and here he comes from this completely fucked up background and this very dysfunctional uh as he just you know, hillbilly white trash kind of his mother has serious addiction problems he has you know horrible situation and he goes to yale and he has people telling him in seminars that he needs to check his privilege yeah and he's like what the irony you know and people who have gone to the best private schools and who've had you know every single advantage are telling him just because of the fact that he's a straight white male that he needs to check his privilege which is yeah it's clearly head, head spinning for him at the yeah time at that. the time he completely and there's that wonderful scene since you just read it you probably remember where they all go out and they they eat a lot of food at this like fast food place and it's late at night and they, they've been out drinking and then they everybody leaves and they leave this massive mess yeah that the that the the woman working there the waitress is gonna have to clean up right and he stays back with this other like african-american student and the two of them spend a whole bunch of time cleaning up the mess before they leave and they they have this like moment of recognition where they realize that they're the only two of all these Yale student law students who thought about that yeah and and the other guy says to him he's like yeah because I think these are people who've had other people clean up their messes for their whole lives for right? sure. yeah. so and, th and that's that I think is one of the uh, one of the problems with the notion as you say one of the problems with privilege now there are people and uh, who say that the whole theory of intersectionality is supposed to correct for these problems by including things like um, whether you're good looking or including things like class, including things, you know, like mental health and physical health and ableism and all that stuff. I mean, what, do, what do you think about, do you think intersectionality sort of salvages the notion of privilege and makes it more... I don't. Useful. I don't at all. So um, I actually think it just slices and dices people up even more um, into ever more arcane and fanciful categories. <laughs> I really do. And and I mean, if you take it to its logical conclusion, you still arrive back at the individual, which is the person we're, you know, which is who we should be looking at. Um, and but I don't think that's the aim of intersectionality. Um, what I see happening with, um, you know, kind of the the 
culture wars on the left right now is is this sort of constant tr- attempt to refine and redefine um, categories of people that become, as I say, I mean, if you pursue them to their logical conclusion, become ever smaller and more unuseful. So yeah, I don't, I don't really buy intersectionality. Yeah, I'm, I'm equally, I'm sort of, I mean, I saw that when I was in graduate school, I remember it was in seminars, it was very often this kind of crazy, almost like the Hunger Games, you know, we were like trying to sort of tear each other apart in this oppression Olympics. And so, and I noticed like some patterns which were really sort of disturbing to me. And although I participated in them completely and until I realized it, but I noticed that uh, the women in the seminar, the white women in the seminar especially would always try and bring the discussion around to a discussion of gender. And people like like myself who grew up uh, poor, my mother was um, on welfare until I was 14 and we were quite poor and we went to food banks and things like that. So guys like me would always try and steer the discussion towards class mm-hmm. and then people of color would try and very often sort of steer the conversation towards towards race and then uh, well, also, it sets you up for competition for who's and, and it just became very suspicious to me that we were all trying to shift things onto the ground where we felt like we would have superiority where we would have an angle on somebody else which is really really I, I realize it's so perverse at a certain point. Seems kind of counterproductive. Well, yeah, I mean, because you're you're defining yourself based on what has happened to you, rather than what you've what the world has done to you, rather than what you've done in the world, right? Which is becomes. You know. And then the question too becomes, what do you gain once you've you know achieved your your niche? Once you've defined it. Um, what what does society have to gain by that? And what do you as an individual have to gain by that? Well, I think the, the argument would be that what you gain is epistemic privilege. So you gain the right to be able to speak on certain matters. So you have the, the authority to speak on certain matters and people have to shut up when you're talking about. Now, to some extent, I get this, mm. right? I get this and I get this um, from former students of mine who are police officers, I hear this from them. I hear this from my friends who are doctors from, they'll say, well, you can't judge my job until you have been a police officer. You can't, you don't know how hard my job is. And until you've actually walked in my shoes. And then you have politicians who say, you can't judge my job until you've walked in my shoes or diplomats. Uh, My friend is a diplomat right now. And he's said the same thing. And, and And so, Clearly, there's some truth to it, right? That in doing something, you you often have certain privilege or being in a situated in a certain way. You see things that other people don't see. Of course, but that's but it, that's it a has truism. a way. But it has a way of like shutting down all discussion. So where you just say, well, you're not allowed to talk about my parenting unless you're a parent yourself. Well. No. I mean, if you see me like hitting my kids in the park, I think it makes sense for you to say, I, I don't think you should be hitting you know, the baby humans. Like, so that's right. But it is very much this way of like shutting down all discussion and just making people listen to you. Right. So that might work around a dinner table or in a seminar, <laughs> maybe, although I don't know if you'd be invited back, you know, um, maybe to the seminar, probably not to the dinner. Mm hmm. 
I think that as a society, we have to be able to evaluate and judge and understand as much as possible all of the different, um, you know, all the different realities that people bring to the table. It's that, you know, that's the only way to get anything done. But there are people who have to be able to evaluate that and then make policy. There are people who have to, uh, you know, police officers who have to make decisions in the moment. I mean, there's so many ways in which you can't step back and say, right, well, you know, my cl- in my case, I'm a white middle class woman, so I'm just going to abscond. I mean, you can't do that. And that's not mm. how society functions. I mean, really, I think that we should all, it's kind of, you know, this like hoary old enlightenment idea, but I think that we should be looking for ways in which we can better talk to each other uh, rather than shutting each other out. I just don't see what the, how there can possibly be a positive end game. Yeah. No, it's, yeah. it's interesting that you talk about the enlightenment because obviously one of the central arguments of the enlightenment was that we all have uh, reason and we have language. And so if we try and speak as clearly as possible and sort of uh, stay away from any kind of obfuscation and any kind of jargon and things like that, if we try and speak as clearly as possible, then people have a capacity for reason and everybody has a capacity for reason, which you know, by the way, for the Enlightenment, that was a very radical idea. Because, I mean, if you go to like ancient Greece, for instance, they, Aristotle and many other ancient Greek philosophers, they thought that only men had a capacity for reason, right? And even often and they would say men. only certain kinds of men too, mm-hmm. right? So it was a small subset of the human population that had a capacity for reason and everybody else was cut out, right? So you get with, in the Western tradition at least, you get with the Stoics and with the Epicureans, the Hellenistic philosophers, they were the first ones to put forward the idea that everybody has a capacity for reason. But it didn't really take off until the Enlightenment, right? And what's interesting is the, the sort of the, the whole discourse around privilege, one of the things that I, I agree with you, and you, you point this out in your, your article, it, one of the things that's very corrosive about it is that it, it actually implicitly says that we are sealed off from each other and we can't actually communicate, that there are these bar- barriers, right, and we can't get over them. Well, as you were saying, you know, the, the, the idea is that you can't possibly understand where I'm coming from. Have you not, you know, if you haven't walked in my shoes or had my experiences. Um, and, and the thing is, you know, Again, um, first of all, everybody has the right to describe their experience. Others have the right to listen and probably the obligation and the duty to listen and to try to understand. And then from there, I mean, that, that's the only way forward to say, well, you can't possibly understand and therefore you have to stop talking. Um, again, yeah, it just, it just uh, you know, shutting people down just doesn't really work. <laughs> yeah. Well, any yeah. It, that, having said that, sorry, having yeah. said that, I mean, I would say, you know, obviously there there's there are easy critiques to make about this, you know, appeal to humanism or to, to you know humanistic principles coming out of the Enlightenment. I mean, you know, Britain Britain's empire took off in the 19th century. They were you know oppressing and and uh, colonizing people all over the world. People who were not obviously did not have access to the public square uh, in a way that they could make themselves heard. That's clear and that's ongoing and. You know, we see that all over the world. So, 
to say, when I say that I think that we should adhere to humanist principles, I say that knowing full well that we haven't achieved that, that there are a whole lot of people around the world who don't feel like that applies to them in any obvious way. Um, and that needs to be addressed. But I just don't think that identity politics, privilege check- checking and that sort of thing are, are the way to go. Yeah. It's one interesting thing about you were talking about the enlightenment and that I've always found is that there was this switch that happened. I I don't know. I guess if I had to make a watershed, I would say the French revolution, but obviously it it happened in different places at different. But in the, in the Ancien regime, there was this thing where people who were very ambitious, who wanted to get ahead in the world, who came from a lower station of life, let's say they were born out of wedlock. They were, uh, considered by the law bastards like myself i was born out of wedlock so i've actually considered uh, a bastard uh which is has some strange like side effects like when my wife and i got married in massachusetts they still have this law in the books from hundreds of years ago where if one of the people getting married is a bastard then your marriage uh, records are sealed and in order to get a copy of them, you have to go and stand before a judge. And the reason is, back in the day, if you wanted to destroy somebody's political reputation or their reputation in business or you know anything, all you had to do is get proof that, that they were a bastard, yeah. and that would completely discredit them, right? So anyway, uh, but so back in the day, what people would do if they were born uh, as a slave or a servant or a serf or out of wedlock, they would pay money. And I mean, the Versailles actually institutionalized this to an unprecedented extent where you could go and buy a title, right? You would go and pay a certain amount of money. They would invent a fake privileged lineage for you and you would be the Duke of, you know, whatever mile end, right? You'd be <laughs> the, the Duchess of the Plateau or something mm-hmm. like that. They would, and they would invent this whole history and you'd pay for it, right? And so this was the, the standard thing to do So people were inventing privileged lineages because coming from an underprivileged background was a source of shame, Mm -hmm. right? Well, what's really fascinating is in our present strange environment, you have people like Rachel Dozio who are pretending to come from an underprivileged background. You have people like uh, George W. Bush's uh, brother. What's the one in Florida? Jeb. Jeb, Jeb. Uh, Jeb saying, I'm a self-made man. Right. This is somebody who's born into one of the most powerful families well, in the United States. In fairness, that's always been important to the Americans, that, that myth of the self-made man. So, oh, yeah. yeah. But, but, but the, the myth of the self-made man is, is, in a sense, is trying to say, like, I made this. I didn't. Right? Yeah. I didn't have this all handed to me. I didn't have me. privilege. <laughs> I didn't have, you know, yeah. and that's why Donald Trump feels the need to say, like, I just got a small loan of $1 million. <laughs> that's all. Like my father. Or 10 or 100. Yeah, yeah my, my, my father didn't help me at all. I did this all myself. Right? Yeah. So in that, regardless of whether it's it's true or not, what's fascinating is now people try really hard to, in certain circles, to stress the presence. Right? Like I have a, a friend who actually went through a rather elaborate uh, paperwork and a lot of like lawyers fees and a lot of things to get um, status sort of indigenous status in Canada and to what end um, because it makes certain grants available and it makes various kinds of things possible but this is somebody who doesn't have any actual 
ties. This is a very distant ancestor. This pers- person has no ties whatsoever. It wasn't Joseph Boyd, was it? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, but, you know, reg- regardless of it, the point being is that if you're an ambitious person, I- I'm not really necessarily judging it one way or the other. I just find it fascinating that if you're an ambitious person who wants to get ahead, the way to go in this day and age is exactly the inverse of what it used to be. So now you you actually downplay the significance of your privileged ancestors and stress the stress the importance of like your underprivileged yeah, ancestors. Yeah, yeah. Well, sometimes I wonder with some of these things. You know, we we I mean, how many people in North America are really affected by these ideas? So, you know, people in the academy, sort of middle upper middle class people are kind of talking about this. You see a lot on social media and people are sort of, you know, debating these ideas, including myself. But I sometimes wonder, you know, out there in the real world, <laughs> does anybody care? But 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 I mean, I and, you know, I think about that and I think, well, probably to some degree. And I think that, you know, I mean, I'm not the first person to say this, but, you know, the Trump phenomenon, right, the sort of when he was talking about political correctness, uh, you know, that really struck a chord for better or for worse with a lot of people. So I guess it is filtering out there into the into the sort of general consciousness, um, it, you know, whether it's affecting them, really affecting them in their daily lives, I'm not sure, but it's something, it's, um, it's a set of issues that has a lot of legs that people are sort of very for, very against. Um, and certainly out there in social media land and in government, Right, we see it a lot here in Canada now too with the Liberal Party. I mean, it is beginning to affect policy, and and so it will affect people's real lives. Uh, anyway. Yeah, I I guess it definitely varies from sector to sector, but I think it's I think it's a mistake to to see this as being just something that happens on the sort of the progressive left, because I mean, as you mentioned in your piece, this is something that happens on the right as well. There's this attempt to sort of show, hey, I'm I'm every man, I'm the politician you want to have a beer with. I'm very down to earth. That's like so this this is something that is quite ingrained in American culture. And because American culture has largely become global culture, it it's sort of filtering to to everywhere else. But yeah, so I don't think it's just on the progressive left. I mean no, you see I, you I see agree. like Malcolm Gladwell, I was listening to one of his podcast the other day and he was talking about how startups there's this mythology of startups and it's always that oh you know we started off in a back room in my apartment and then we like blew up and and he says actually the real story of most startups is you were working at some big company like IBM and you developed an idea and you stole some intellectual property from a big corporation (laughs) and then you went off and like so you didn't actually it wasn't just David and Goliath all the way you didn't start with nothing you know so I think this is the idea of rags to riches that it's something that is actually very ingrained in that aspect of it yeah in American culture and so to that extent this obsession with privilege is not so much a brand new thing, but it's a, a new, perhaps especially malignant mat- manifestation of something that's been around for quite a while. Well, and it has, you know, and it manifests itself somewhat differently on the left and on the right, yes. um, as I talked about in the piece as well. Um, but yeah, on the left, I think it's being used to sort of reproach people. I mean, I understand where they're coming from. They want everybody, you know, the left wants social justice for everybody. And those are laudable, you know, it's a laudable goal. Um, I think that they're not going about it in the best way, particularly because that kind of um, uh, the, the 
the the note of grievance with that's a, you know that these um, commands to check your privilege and that sort of thing, it's a real turnoff, um, and it alienates people. And we're seeing that. I mean, we are seeing you know the rise of the alt right. Uh, you know Donald Trump, who I personally cannot stand. Like it, it still <laughs> to this day. <laughs> upsets me i remember a few years ago you wrote a blog post about him how you were just like you said oh, donald trump could win could win i remember <laughs> that and you were talking about if i remember God. correctly you were talking about how there had been like terrorist attacks and there had been oh it's been a while since i read it but mm-hmm. you were talking about how there, there was a running route for the navy or something like that and they found a bomb and anyway there had been a bunch of terrorist things you mm-hmm. said this was all going to play well for for him but uh, yeah but anyway you were saying he well, well and anyway so 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 you know on the left it's it is kind of grievance politics I, I think that they're i think that they're selling their message really badly and i do think that there's um you know there's there's the equal and opposite reaction um on the right and i'm actually much more worried about what it's doing on the right and the way in which it's it's um upending all of the social justice ambitions of people on the left or you know on the center left so yeah i think it's you know ultimately it's it's not productive it's counterproductive um i think that it's i think it's giving rise to some really sort of nasty angry um not very nice talk on the right which itself you know given that it's 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 got currency in social media it amplifies it gets you know ever more weird evermore ugly um so anyway i just think that the conversation needs to change and that we need to sort of not so much come up with new terms but new ways to to frame these debates um ways that are less antagonistic that are more inclusive um that bring people together and uh that's it so how would you imagine that we would do that i mean okay I'll, i'll frame it this way that um it's always seemed to me that identity politics, from a from a strategic standpoint, movement politics, that identity politics makes makes sense if you are the majority. So if you're trying to mobilize a silent majority, so let's say I'm like Nelson Mandela in South Africa, right, or I'm uh, René Lévesque here in Quebec, and I'm trying to sort of rouse a silent majority. So numerically. The, this group is is kind of they are the biggest group so it makes sense to me in that I'm not saying it's necessarily a good idea but identity politics strategically makes sense in that standpoint because if so, you arouse the the masses then they can through democratic elections or through force they can get power but, but it how seems is to that me when you're trying identity? to mobilize an um, a minority by identity politics, it seems like it's very counterproductive because the more that they shout about how they are really identifying with their particular group, the more they, you know, the majority or people outside of there are going to say, well, fine, if you don't feel any connection and any loyalty to like our larger group called, you know, Quebec or Canada Mm -hmm. or the Mm -hmm. United States or Christendom or like Islam, if you don't have any loyalty to this larger tribe that we're trying to work out, then why should I do anything for you? There's right? somebody who talks really interestingly about that. Um, he's a, an African-American economist named Glenn Lowry. I don't know if you're familiar no, with him. Um, he teaches at Brown University. He's a you know professor emeritus emeritus a million times. 
Um, he's written several books. He's, he's quite wonderful. He's about 70. He actually has a podcast as well, or sort of a, it's on Blogging Heads TV. Anyway, um, he uh, he was born, born and raised in Chicago, had a really crazy, really uh, difficult upbringing in many ways. He had three kids by the time he was 19 or 20 or wow. something like that. Uh, worked in a printing plant for five years and then finally to college and from there he went to Northwestern and from there to Harvard um, where I think he quickly became a professor and started publishing and all. Anyway, why did I just give you his background? Oh, so he has interesting <laughs> things to say <laughs> about um, about things like Black Lives Matter. So he does not like Ta-Nehisi Coates, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't appreciate what he's trying to do. He doesn't he anyway that that's a sort of a separate story but uh glenn lowry really thinks that he he knows as well as anybody else what the problems are um among you know underserved disadvantaged black people in the united states and he really feels like the way they have to frame their needs and their problems is as part of the larger polity mm-hmm. and to include um sort of underserved, you know, the, the hillbilly LG people, the, the mm-hmm. you know, Kentucky, Ohio, Illinois, poor white people who are, you know, who are also facing not exactly the same problems across the board, but many of the same ones in order to mobilize political action mm-hmm. and to get, you know, the larger uh, um, population to really pay attention and understand and get it and not feel alienated, but instead view it through this, you know, this more inclusive lens. Yeah. Well, that's very often the best way to do it. If you say, if people have some connection, if you can find like common ground, if people have, say, we are all like Montrealers or we are all New Yorkers. Like after September 11th, I remember lots of people saying, you know, we're all New Yorkers and this feeling of solidarity, right? Or we are all Canadians or we're all Quebecers or Americans. If you can find like some common ground, then that is a very, very powerful way to sort of inspire people to be more altruistic. I mean, if you yeah. look at this, one of the classic examples of this, I think, would be um, Christianity, right? When Christianity was first spreading, the at the time, the Roman Empire was you know starting to fall apart in many ways. And it was services, social services were not as good anymore. And very quickly, the churches, the network of churches became um, a, a social safety net, mm-hmm. right? So there are the wealthy churches, the, front, the wealthiest church in Rome. Uh, that's how the bishop in Rome became the pope eventually and became the most influential. It mainly was money, right? Because the Roman church had the most money, but they would do trans, the equivalent of what we would think of in Canada as transfer payments mm-hmm. to these poorer churches uh, in the in the east and stuff like that, they would send money to them, and this was based on this common identity that you know, as as Paul says, you know, we are in Christ Jesus. There is neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. We are all in Christ Jesus. So this kind of universalist vision became a framework for a lot of very altruistic action, right? And that's that's. You know, there's been many other examples. Islam is a fantastic example of that as well. And then nationalism and patriotism at their best, when they're not causing world wars and being terrible, Mm -hmm. at their best, they do the same thing, right? So it seems to me that the, the worst possible thing, if you're trying to get people to behave more cooperatively and to share their toys more effectively, uh, the worst thing to do is to say we have no commonality 
You yeah. Know, you're over there. I'm over here. Because at that point, well, then there's only one way to figure things out, and it's with guns and knives and Yeah, we either kill force. each other or never speak again. Yeah, that it's the war of my tribe against yours. And so if you're if you're ready to do that, if you're ready to go to physical force, then, you know, I guess that's... Then you that's, better know what you're getting yourself you be, into. Exactly, you better know what you're getting into. Mm-hmm. And uh, But if you don't, and I think most, the vast majority of progressives don't, but I don't think they realize that this kind of martial language has consequences. Manning the barricades. And yeah, if you, if you use this really, really violent language and you're not ready to actually back it up with anything. I mean, that's that's really... You're just going to end up with a bunch of enemies that you're not prepared for. Yeah, right. And I, I have... A, I don't know if you've been... Have you been watching Homeland? Do you watch that show? Yeah, yeah, I've watched it. I've kind of uh, kind of obsessed with it lately. But there, it's very fascinating because right now in this season, spoiler alert, if you're... Don't, don't listen to this part of the podcast. Uh, but uh, they're in this part of the season, the episode that just aired on Sunday night... They have this character on there that's very clearly a thinly veiled Alex Jones, like from Info right. Wars, right? And he whips people up into a frenzy. I've uh, seen, I've seen this. Okay, you've seen. Okay, and he, but he's actually a complete phony. Like he's never, he's always talking about gun rights and the importance of. He's never shot a gun in his life. He doesn't know, and you see that when he gets onto it with all those like people who are the survivalists and the the white nationalists and stuff like that. He doesn't know what he's talking about at all, right? And yet the consequences of him whipping people up into a frenzy are terrible, right? And I think there's people like that right now on the right and the left who are irresponsibly whipping people up into a frenzy. And I don't think they... I don't think they have any idea what they're getting into. I don't think they. I think the ones on the right do, honestly. You think I so? think the Alex Jones people. Yeah, I think so. You think, I think they're actually ready for that? Yeah. Yeah. I no, mean, some of the uh, you know you, some guys you like very... that, the Rush Limbaugh and people like that. I mean, they they know what they're doing. They have been you know Rush Limbaugh has been whipping people up for what is it thirty years. He's been able to see the the effect that that's had politically. Um, you know, and the and the way it's divided the country. I mean. I guess I, if after I, many I'm, decades they don't get I'm it. I'm not totally. I'm not totally sure because I, if you look at some examples, there are some examples where uh, I would agree with you. They do seem to be very much prepared for the real thing. Um, but I've also seen like a bunch of examples. What was that um, in Oregon? That standoff between the ranchers and things. That was like a very that. local thing, though. And, and they they were talking really really tough. Like they're you know we're going to go up against the government. They didn't even like. They didn't even prepare enough food and water. No, but that they was didn't... just some backward <laughs> clan of you know, yokels. <laughs> they were not at all prepared. Like I remember when the Oka crisis happened mm-hmm. here in Montreal. Like I grew up like across the St. Lawrence River from from a lot of like from Mohawks, and I went to school with them in LaSalle and stuff like that. They were completely prepared. Like they had huge stockpiles of weapons, ammunition, food. They had. They were. They knew what they right. were getting into when they said. Uh, you actually build this golf course on our land, uh, we'll take it to physical force. They were completely ready for what that would mean, and they knew what it would mean. Uh, I find my impression, you know, maybe you're right. Maybe on the right they are more serious, but on the left I find there is a real kind of not understanding what you're actually saying and doing. 
right? And I have this expression that I've that I've sort of coined for people like this. You know, we talk about like chicken hawks, they sort of the type of like right wing militaristic conservative who's rah rah rah, let's go invade countries, but has never actually fought in any wars and avoided yeah, the yeah. draft and makes sure that their kids don't go to war and all that stuff. Well, I, I have this term for people like that on the left, the revolution hawks, right? And they're people who constantly like are rah, 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 revolution violence, and they advocate revolutionary violence, but they themselves have had no experience of revolution or No, violence. they're probably fey coffee drinkers <laughs> down the street. No, they, they have no idea like yeah. how how ugly and how terrible these things can get, right? So how do we how do we get past this to a a more kind of civil discourse where we can get things done and make the world a better place? Well, interestingly, along with the rise of all of this madness of the last couple of years, I mean, there's just been so much stuff. It, it feels like since 2016, it's oh, been yeah. nonstop crazy. Um, but at the same time, there's been a rise of, you know, these really thoughtful people having long conversations on podcasts and mm -hmm. really, you know, on YouTube, um, people like Sam Harris, mm -hmm. um, who is a huge inspiration to me and who's actually introduced me to so many interesting thinkers, but, um, but he's not alone. And I think that it's, it's really taking off, um, cause it's, you know, you see more and more of that, these sort of long format, um, discussions, conversations between people, often even people who don't agree on everything. And they kind of hash it out in a really civilized way. And I think that's sort of new in, in, you know, in the public media. I mean, that's something that, you know, I don't know, maybe back in the 60s, occasionally you'd have, you know, um, what was his name? Buckley. Oh, um, William F. Buckley. Going up yeah. against Gore Vidal or whatever. But yeah. it, even though it was often quite confrontational, and, you know. Um, but, I mean, last several, several decades? No, it's sound bites. It's people looking for the last word. It's, you know, 15-second clips of people making fools of themselves or rousing, you know, their people. Um, so yeah, so haven't you noticed that? No, I have noticed that. And it's interesting because and there's the, such a hunger for it, um, right? Sebastian Furtado, the producer of this podcast, we were talking about this just actually before you arrived, we were talking about how the, the intellectual dark web and how it's, yeah. it's very, in a way I see some parallels to, to JK Rowling's Harry Potter, right? Like when Harry Potter came out, um, as you may or may not know, she, shopped that manuscript yeah, yeah. around to numerous publishers she got some very very nasty rejection letters and she actually she wrote i think it was in the new york times there was an op-ed where she talked all about all of the rejection letters she got and she named names and like had included like really patronizing quotes from editors and stuff like that it, it was amazing uh, but she one of the main things she got uh, again and again was they said Kids these days, these these are actual publishers at major houses said, kids these days are stupid idiots that have no attention span. Your book is way too long. You have to, you know, the only way they play video games, they have no attention span. Oh, by the way, no little boy is going to read a book written by a woman. So you better, that's why she went with J.K. Rowling. You better, wow. like, you know, conceal the fact that you're a woman. And they, really nasty stuff. I knew she got a lot of rejections. I didn't realize they were... <laughs> with this kind of stuff uh, she and anyway so she completely revolutionized the way a whole kind of generation of educators thought because she proved that young people could actually 
read very a very long novel, you know, mm. hundreds of pages, and could be a bestseller, which did not make any sense. Like it went totally against the conventional wisdom. So, what would you say about you know Sam Harris and, and other people like Joe Rogan and stuff it goes like against that. the conventional yeah, wisdom that, and that and people the don't have. You have to make everything really snappy into a Twitter, into a tweet, or into like make this fifteen minutes and very punchy and very high energy, like breaking, into the- <laughs> breaking news, yeah. right? Like you know, so like and so CNN, demolished right? by. And so having Anderson two Cooper. people in a calm fashion, where they're not shouting over each other, where they're having like a conversation with each other, talking for an hour, two hours, three hours, that should not work. It shouldn't work and yet people are doing it right and in, in a way jordan peterson is also an example of although this. he's not the quietest person. no he's not <laughs> so but, like, but i mean the first time i had students who were really into jordan peterson and so i i said well i should go check him out and his voice just drove me insane i couldn't stand like that that squeaky and the canadian accent I, I just couldn't stand it so i couldn't get through it and i thought yeah. how is this how are people listening to dozens and dozens of hours, hours of long talks that are the opposite of like nineteen? S- yeah, and they're happy you know, like quick cuts and long you know. talks about you know the Old Testament <laughs> and taking responsibility for yourself. Yeah, and he's actually he's finding these the very same people who supposedly didn't have the attention span for J.K. Rowling for Harry Potter supposedly don't have the attention span for a long Jordan Peterson lecture and guess what they do, right? Yeah, exactly. And they also have the attention span for Joe Rogan like podcasts, which can be like two, three hours long. That guy's a beast. Like they can just go on and, and rambling and people really like it, right? So yeah, I think you're you're right. Maybe there's at the same time in the midst of this very polarizing environment, there are, pe- there are people on on either end that is saying like fuck it i I don't like this anymore i want to have like who are quite self-consciously doing this which i think is great and yeah who are doing this and yeah they have millions of followers i mean unbelievable you know the the views on these videos and on like sam harris podcast they can easily go three hours but they're just so popular yeah and there's such a hunger for that fascinating and they're they're clearly not He's not trying to be snappy or entertaining. It's no, not. definitely not. He's a bit monotone and robotic. <laughs> mon- but I love I mean, him. He sounds like I mean, he's great, but he sounds like a very high-functioning autistic man. You yeah, know, so, on, on the like, <laughs> he's like you know got like or neuroatypical. That's the PC term now. But yeah, he does seem like like he's he's not like trying to emote a great deal, right? So that's uh, that's very true. So you think that's that's part of the way that we get around it? But but what do you do with you know, and we, we've seen this just in the last couple of days and your reactions to your piece and Quillette. There's people on on either side that are going to want to claim, claim it. Claim it. How do you fight that? Uh, you make it an ongoing. You don't necessarily have to fight it, I don't think. I think you just make it an ongoing conversation. Um, if it's a one-off and, you know, everybody feels like they've scored their own personal points, you know, they've drawn from it what, you know, buttresses whatever arguments they have. Um, no, that's not great. Um, I mean, there have been a few sort of more f- right word leaning people who've commented on it. Um, and but I think most of the people are kind of somewhere in the center and, and they appreciate that it's, you know, it's a, a piece that 
I guess, could be a little provocative to some people on the left, but in a nice way. It's more sort of about, you know, let's talk about this. Um, and then for the rest, for the people who are looking for fodder, I would just say, you know, keep those conversations going. Uh, um, that's sort of what I'm trying to do on social media and what I'm trying to do with my writing is you know, sometimes poke a little bit and say things that, you know, might um, raise some eyebrows without actually having people fall into their fainting couches so that we can maintain <laughs> the dialogue. Well, it's, uh, you know, I as I said in my sort of response to your piece that as Margaret Atwood said in that uh, much, much shared article, Am I a Bad Feminist? She says, you know, in, in extreme times, people are, right, people are pulled to the extremes and moderates become sort of the most hated people, you know, because they, they're like, oh, you, you're refusing to choose Take a, a stand. side, right? And so moderates end up being the worst kind of heretics. Right? Well, actually, I've, I've, I've actually seen that on Twitter. Um, I saw some crazy rant. It was a long thread on Twitter. It was like 45 entries or something where this guy was trying to make the argument that people in the center are the real fascists. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think he made his point all that well, but boy, did he ever try. Um, so I guess that is a point of view. <laughs> but I mean, I think that's kind of fringe. I, I don't think that the people in the middle are going to be pummeled out of existence. I think that people eventually will, you know, uh, what what was the word I'm looking for? Will eventually sort of um, empty themselves of their ranting, and then they'll, you know, then they're, they're going to want to know how to operate in the world as it is. And yeah. so they'll always be there's another thing I wanted to ask you that. about, which is the the psychologist Jonathan Haidt, who mm-hmm. wrote the Happiness Hypothesis, um, the the Righteous Mind, yeah, uh, why good people are divided by politics and religion, and his new book, which is coming out in a couple of months, The Coddling of the American Mind, which should be I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, he says that there is one kind of interesting difference that he's found in his research between, and of course this is in the American context, between liberals, conservatives, and libertarians. And so the the way the test goes, it goes something like this. They'll have uh, a list of, let's say, like 100 questions, right? And they'll ask you, first of all, to identify what is your political leaning so you say well you know i'm a, I'm a liberal and and then sometimes he'll have a, a special category saying are you very liberal somewhat liberal very conservative somewhat conservative very libertarian somewhat and then he says uh, okay fill out this questionnaire so they fill out the questionnaire then they give them the exact same questionnaire and they say how do you think a so let's say you know you're a conservative you say like how do you think a liberal would answer this questionnaire and so they answer it. And then they say, how do you think a libertarian would answer this questionnaire? And they, they fill it out. And he said, there's a really, really marked difference. So conservatives, as it turns out, conservatives, um, when you ask them to fill out the questionnaire the way a liberal would, mm-hmm. they do really, really well. They have a high degree oh, so of accuracy. Oh, so they are able to identify how liberals they, think. They, uh, they yeah. just can't relate. They understand, they understand how liberals think and so when you ask them to um, to fill it out they can do it when you ask them uh, to fill it out the way a libertarian would fill it out they're very very good at doing hmm. that as well high degree of of accuracy libertarians are even better libertarians are extremely good at knowing how liberals and conservatives think right 
the big outlier are liberals. Liberals, when they fill out the questionnaire, they, they're way off. They're way off. They basically think that you would look from the research, Height says, it looks like, and the more liberal you is are. Is it that pe- they can't allow themselves to identify those? Well, this qualities? is what I wanted to sort of ask you, like, because nobody's, this is something that's been tested many, many times and found the same result. Nobody's really sure why, right? There's theories, but liberals are big outliers when it comes to capacity for empathy with people, which is funny because liberals pride themselves on being really empathetic. But actually, liberals are, in all these studies, they're terrible at empathy. They they do not. They think all libertarians are sociopaths, and they think all conservatives are fascists, right? Yeah. Like like theocrats, and they don't actually. And so this is this is a problem, I think, because um, if you want to, even once again, just from like a, a sort of a cold strategic standpoint i i go back to this often unfortunately but if you want to beat an opponent whether it be in like a a boxing match or a chess match or anything if you want to beat somebody in a you're competing against another business or political party you first have to know who they are right you have to like watch like if you're gonna be trained i used to do like uh, martial arts like in fights and stuff like that and like you watch how somebody fights you look for their weaknesses their strengths you you pay attention to them and the more you know how they fight the more effective you'll be at, at fighting them so in this respect just from a purely strategic standpoint uh, liberals and especially like far left uh, progressives liberals mm. they don't know their opponents very well at all well you saw the facebook post that i wrote about having met Yes. A progressive candidate. Okay. Can you not, make, just uh, well, recount I don't that? Go, uh, yeah. You so, don't have to give specifics, but I thought it was a really great Right. Story. So I went to a fundraiser. I was invited by a friend who was hosting it to this uh, fundraiser for a woman who wants to run for the parliament um, uh, for the Liberal Party. Um, oh, I think I know what you're talking about. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know what you're talking about. She's a good, good friend of mine. So. She was lovely. Yeah, she was really lovely. But um, there was a it was a small group of people. It's March, right? Not that many people show up. But um, anyhow, uh, so she was sort of laying out uh, some of her ideas, um, which I was, you know, many of which I was really sympathetic to. Um, But then, you know, sort of talking about her approach to how she would deal with these things and the kinds of changes that she wants to make um, as a member of parliament. And there were quite a few progressive people around and everybody was just cheering on everything that she was saying. I mean, absolutely uncritically, you know, every idea was the greatest thing that ever heard. Um, anyhow, afterwards, she and I were chatting and um, and I, t- I sort of suggested that she might want to consider the fact that, you know, some of these ideas are ultra progressive. I mean, they're not traditionally quite liberal party ideas. The liberal party is moving to the left and all that. But, you know, these are kind of out there. Um by liberal party standards, you know, a party that tries to straddle kind of the, the right and the left. Um, but more importantly, that, you know, the liberal party has become quite progressive and there is, in fact, a backlash. I mean, if you look at any of the comments section under, you know, articles in the National Post or even the Global Mail or elsewhere, um, 
people are getting really, you know, a lot of people out there are getting really tired of this relentless march toward progress, a progress that not everybody is necessary, or a vision of progress, which not everybody is necessarily bought into or are ready for, or that's necessarily going to be to their advantage. Um, so I, I, I was just sort of talking about that with her a little bit and just saying, hey, you know, um, I mean, I wasn't trying to tell her what to run on, but just to be aware that pushing a progressive agenda too far or far, very far, might have certain un unintended consequences. And she really looked at me with what I took to be surprise, real surprise. And this is a really intelligent woman. Mm -hmm. Oh, um, she is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, without going into any detail about her background, but she's clearly yeah. somebody who, oh, no. you know. She's one of the smartest people I know. <laughs> and also one of the best people I know. She's a really good she person She seems well. amazing. Yeah. But no, that's, that's very good advice. And unfortunately, this is a problem right in in any walk of life right if you surround yourself with people who and often it happens automatically it's not even that you surround yourself with them but if you're only surrounded with people who tell you what you want to hear and sort of like rah 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 then you can if you're not careful you can end up as the emperor you know with his new clothes you can end up making a really I mean this is how the so the Bush administration got into trouble with the invasion of Iraq, mm -hmm. right? I mean, it was an evil, terrible idea from day one, but uh, it also was really stupid because they, they invaded Iraq without an exit, without strategy. exit strategy. And the reason why they had no exit strategy is because they had, had a policy. convinced themselves that everything. Well, it was also sy systematic. They just, anybody who said something they didn't want to hear was not invited to the meetings. So Colin right. Powell was just not invited to the planning meetings anymore because right. he was a real bummer, mm -mm. right? He was saying stuff that, and the same thing if you read uh, Barbara Ehrenreich's book, Bright-Sided, which is uh, the how positive thinking is ruining oh, America I read, I read and the a world. Review of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, she talks about how the positive thinking has is behind so many problems in our society and she talks about the mortgage crisis and how mm -hmm. specifically people within the insurance industry and the banking industry who said there's a problem with what we're doing here those people were sidelined fired negative, not promoted thinking negatively yeah they're, they're like you know the tony robbins types they're like <laughs> you're just you know not like living the dream right so yeah. those people so it's good to have people like you around who can say like hey you might want to like think about this possibility like hey you've got lettuce between your teeth there's a booger on your nose like like somebody who very often a good friend and a good advisor is the person that will tell you things that you don't want to hear right and if you don't listen to those people yeah not everybody's can... wise enough to have a good friend around who will say no occasionally though right because i think that human impulse is to surround yourself with people who who agree and who are going to sort of help you achieve that vision so yeah so yeah so it's it's hard to balance that right and i can understand especially if you come from a situation where you felt very powerless and you've had like a rough time you might especially want to surround yourself with cheerleaders mm -hmm. right and i think that's what happens very often in certain kind of very very political circles you surround yourself with people who just like completely back up everything you say right and that just reinforces your position right and this so i mean but just just to circle back for a minute like what would be your explanation what would be your guess 
as to why there is this big difference between liberals, conservatives, and libertarians on on yeah. ability to empathize with the other side. Right. I mean, so the way you framed it earlier was liberals are not good at empathy. I mean, I, I, I'm not sure that's quite what with it is, other, with but other, specifically with other political points of view. Yeah. Because um, liberals are on the moral high ground, right? Why would they want to sully themselves? Why would they even want to stop and think and get into the minds of those evil sociopaths on the other <laughs> side who are just trying to bring humanity down? You know, that would be crazy. Like, why waste time with that? Let's just, you know, carry on in our forward march to perfection. Um, yeah, I think that they, you know, liberals often do. They really do kind of want the best for the maximum number of people in a specific way. That's not to say conservatives don't. It's not to say libertarians don't. But liberals want to, you know, do it now and, and do it in this sort of inclusive hug everybody right now kind of way. I mean, it's, it's often quite emotional as well. Um, and so uh, so they assume that people who don't have that sense of kind of emotional, immediate need to help must be cold, cold hearted people and you know why you know how, how could they possibly relate to that so that i think that's the assumption that's made okay i just can't get out of that and I, and also jonathan Haidt has some interesting things to say about sort of the the um about politics and religion and the way in which you know certain political ideas also function like or or political movements function like religions and i think liberalism um can definitely work that way in it, especially in its progressive especially part. in its progressive incarnation because you know you are you know there is this goal there's this grand goal around which people as he would say can circle and and you know band together um yeah so it's yeah compelling no, that's that i think that's i i also think you know something you're implying before i think maybe has something to do with it the, the whole idea of taboo boundaries right mm -hmm. that like certain groups just erect taboo boundaries which decide like i'm i'm not going to even think about that right so the i'm not even going to go there because that's it's dangerous just to even think that for a moment so it could be i think for yeah, some people because yeah. i've seen this when i've been talking to some of my progressive friends about like why for instance people in my family in the states especially in the rust belt why they voted for donald trump and and I try and explain to them, and there's just this absolute, this kind of resistance, wall, this yeah, anger, and it's it exactly the kind of anger that I've encountered when you're trying to sort of talk about evidence for evolution to a creationist, a young earth creationist. Or to or talk that, you know, about the fact that, you know, trade maybe isn't such a terrible thing to a super left-wing anti-capitalist. They just... Yeah. Oh, their heads explode. Yeah, and it's but there's this sense that like I just don't want to hear what you're saying, mm -hmm. and it's very, it's very aggressive. It's like no, they voted for him because they they're are racist. white supremacists, mm -hmm. uh, and they're misogynists and they're terrible and you know they're horrible. And it's like well maybe they have other reasons for doing it, but but just the the idea like empathizing with somebody who might have a different opinion you that all by itself is seen as a way it sullies you it's it's bizarre right so um and maybe that ties in with what we we're talking about with respect to you know checking your privilege and and not allowing certain people to speak and only other special people with uh, extra needs are allowed to take up space um 
Yeah, I think that there's something there as well. I mean, it's very, it's divisive. It's, you know, if you're a white, straight man, middle class, then you are de facto the devil. It just, yeah. <laughs> right, maybe that was a little Well, you're, you're responsible for, I mean, that, that's one of the things. Responsible for all the ills Yeah, the I, mean, I, I actually, I read Coates' book, and Between the World and Me, and mm-hmm. I found... Uh, I really liked uh, quite a few of my friends don't like the language of it. I really liked I found the language really poetic and evocative well, and interesting. He's a great writer. Yeah, I, I liked the, the ideas. Uh, and I, there were things that I liked about the book um, a lot, but the the thing that bugged me the most about the book was just this notion of group responsibility and Collective group rights because one of the things mm-hmm. that I think is so great about the enlightenment about modernity is getting rid of the idea of group responsibility and we've we've said individuals are responsible for their you know what they do and what they don't do because group responsibility collective responsibility that cuts both ways it can redound to your advantage or it can really keep you down i mean ultimately it's it's not it's a losing game i think if that's if you're going to go for collective responsibility from the progressive side well that can just be flipped right back on you and has been i mean you know that's why a lot of people are still stranded yeah no i mean actually the whole notion of collective responsibility has in general historically has been responsible for really ugly stuff not exactly not you know it's it's exactly. a lot of anti-semitism in europe was based on they killed our lord you know <laughs> they they crucified yeah. and so we like jews are collectively responsible for uh for you know the crucifixion of jesus which is totally insane on numerous levels i mean jesus was jewish but anyway they but the notion of collective responsibility was also a key element of the pro-slavery argument in the South. Yeah. They argued that that Africans were the, the descendants, descendants of, of Ham. Of Ham, yeah. yeah, exactly, right, who uh, was punished by God for seeing his father's junk. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> Noah was drunk in his tent and his And his women kids. were collectively responsible for Eve bringing sure, knowledge sure. into the world. Yeah, I mean, it, there's so many examples, but generally yeah. speaking collective the notion of collective responsibility has been a powerfully regressive force in the world it's not been a progressive force for the most part and so but regardless of how it's been used Mm -hmm. it's generally speaking um it's a really great thing in the modern world that we we say that individuals are responsible for their actions not you're not born guilty you know because as it says in the old testament the sins of the father shall pass down to the sons unto the seventh generation. So the the idea that somehow people are this very old testament idea that people are born guilty and you, yeah, you yeah. get the sense in between the world and me that uh, that white babies in America are born guilty. Like they are born right. tainted with the original, original sin, sin of mm-hmm. of racism. They're they're right and this was how for a long time, right, in uh, in Christian culture especially in catholicism the way they justified how babies that had not been baptized were going to go to hell for the longest time is they said well they're born guilty because of original sin so that's because the question arose immediately people said well how can a baby that's done nothing be guilty and go so that to was the eternal damnation right argument. they said well because they're born guilty because of original sin yeah. so in Coates's account there's this powerful metaphysical force 
called you know racism and it's just it infuses yeah, it infuses every interaction everything. nobody can transcend it nobody can get past it's it. a very pessimistic vision it is it yeah. is and it's also the funny thing about it is that Coates, which is interesting for for an activist like in his because very often even people like barack obama um, who maybe don't really wear their faith on their sleeve they've very much aligned themselves with the black church in the united states because they've recognize that it's a really important institution and has been involved in a lot of social change and civil rights movement and all these things. Uh, but Coates very explicitly says in Between the World and Me that he's an atheist and that he thinks religion is bullshit and he doesn't subscribe to any of this stuff. And yet he's written this incredibly religious book. Yeah, It's such a, it's a very, very biblical Old Testament book and it's it's theology and there's there's been like some people that actually uh, called him out on that right yeah i think i've seen i've seen that um, yeah and cornell west actually criticized him rather savagely and said that he doesn't he doesn't realize that um, this this sort of this view that he has i mean actually cornell west's criticism was very similar to yours he said you have to appeal to a common humanity to a common, we are it's all. It's more of a class-based. Um, he says. He says we have to think view. about people as like we're all children of God. We are. You have to think in terms of uh, the oppressed versus the oppressors. Almost kind of a quasi-Marxist yeah. view, uh, and we have to think of the fact that we're all Americans and we're in this. So, is it, there's various ways that we can find common ground and use that as a way to move forward a progressive agenda, but your vision of things is nothing but a dead end. It leads nowhere. There's nowhere. Um, I mean, I would say there is one way to go from Coates' vision. In terms of reparations? Uh, no, I think the the only way to go other than a dead end from his vision is armed conflict where you take up weapons and you have like a... They're 13% of the population uh, in the United, United States. Yeah. It's not a great idea. No, it's not a very good idea. But I think this is, you know, to come back to one of our earlier points we were talking about this is something that i think a lot of people who speak in this kind of apocalyptic uh, yeah apocalyptic, i don't think they've faced up to what what possibilities that leaves on the table mm -hmm. right the they, logical yeah that extension. all the only possibilities that that are left on the table are that somehow the majority is going to just decide they completely agree with your analysis and give you everything you want out of the goodness of their hearts, right? I guess that's one thing that's potentially not very likely. And the second one is armed resistance, that you have a, some sort of a revolution and you, like an armed conflict where lots and lots of people die and it's terrible. Uh, but there's there's not really anything left on the table when you, when you go there. But anyway, I... Thank you very, very much oh, for coming fun. to talk about this and uh, definitely want to see you again in the future. Well, I'm sure right? we'll cross paths <laughs> yes. now that All we're right. going to recognize yes. each other. Right. Thank you. It was my pleasure.